just looking around, appreciating so many of you that I've had contact with, and then there's the many of you I haven't had contact with, but I know you're also really engaged in quite a ride, huh? Anybody notice this is quite a ride? Yeah. I went to my first Vipassana meditation retreat 37 years ago. And uh, at the time, I was living in Humboldt County. And if you don't live around here, you might not know that Humboldt County is still considered a bit of an alternate reality. Um, but in the 70s, yeah, in the 70s, it was definitely another world. And I, I <laughs> we have an Arcata person here. So, um, you know, I had my uh, lifestyle that I lived, and my brother, who's a hard-working young attorney, loved to make fun of me and my friends for our work ethic. And, you know, my work was that I led some women's groups and some wilderness vision quest retreats, and, and we did some other group things, too. You know, it was a time that that could happen. So anyway, I came back from this retreat, and my big brother, four years older, says, um, well, where were you this time? And I said, I was at a 10-day meditation retreat in the desert. And he said, oh, you had another vacation. <laughs> and right, you get it. It's like, well, actually, there's no way I could begin to tell you how it wasn't a vacation. <laughs> It was incredible. It was some of the hardest, some of the best experiences of my life. You know, I didn't know then, but I was hooked for life. But the last thing I would call it was a vacation. And I think you know what I'm talking about. So I think that by this point in the retreat, most people here have experienced at least a few moments of difficulty, maybe one or two, and um, maybe a couple moments of of just incredible opening or beauty or insight and many moments in the middle of boredom or just neutral. And as Law said the other night, what we're trying to learn here is how to be present with our whole life, the whole thing. Not trying to pretend that we can cut out some part and just have the nice part. So by this time, 2014, most of you have heard of something called the First Noble Truth. But if you haven't, I'll remind you, the Buddha got enlightened, and then his very first teaching. Uh, This is a big deal. When an enlightened Buddha gives his first teaching, it's called the turning of the wheel. So what will this Buddha talk about? You know, heaven realms, devas, the, the, all the past lives, all the future lives. What will he say? So he says to his little handful of friends that were there who had known him a long time, he said, my friends, this life is filled with suffering. First noble truth. He said, you know, there's sickness, there's old age, there's death, there's all kinds of hurt and disappointment that goes on here. And I remember when I heard that, I was about 17 or 18, the first time I heard it, so many years before that retreat. And in my arrogant teenagehood, I remember thinking, the Buddha is wrong. You know, he's this old, outdated guy. He doesn't get it. 
I, 17-year-old me, gets it. You know, it's, it's not all suffering. So I was just, we call that denial. We call that not ready to face the facts. I just wasn't ready to accept how vulnerable it all is, how vulnerable we are, how vulnerable our earth is. I wasn't there yet, so I was resorting to the very favorite or one of the top favorite pastimes of humans in the face of something hard, deny it. Say they're wrong, right? So the um, Buddha goes on to the second noble truth. The second noble truth, he said, the cause of the suffering is, is not the fact that everything is impermanent, which it is. That's not the cause of the suffering. The cause of the suffering is that we take this fist and we try to grab on and hold on to things that are impermanent to try to find happiness and peace. So it's kind of like if you were ever on a rope tow, um, skiing, and you took on, without gloves, and you tried to hold on to the rope, and, it go, and you get a rope burn. That's the suffering. The burn of attempting to hold on to something that's going, that you can't hold. The flip side of that grasping, causing suffering, as the Buddha went on, was it's the same energy, it's just the flip side, and we've been mentioning it, somebody's mentioned it at every Dharma talk, there's the grasping, and then there's the aversion. So it's this, still the fist. It's the fighting against how it is. So either I've got to have it like this, or I don't want it like this. But the Buddha is saying, that's actually why we suffer. So at retreat, it can get very subtle. I don't know if you've noticed yet. You can be sitting. It can be getting quite quiet. Maybe you're just a little tired, and you think, oh, if I just had a little caffeine right now, I'll just take a walk. I need, if I could have a little caffeine, then I could meditate better. Then I could be happy. Then I'll be happy. Or, or you know, if I just had one of those beanbag cushions like that person has, then I could sit in that position longer. Then I could meditate. Then I would be happy. You know, so we do all this story, and and it can get subtle. You can also, I'm sure, relate to the one where you're sitting there. This is the opposite side. This is the fighting, the resisting. It says, um, I would be happy if they would just ring the bell. (laughs) Just, why isn't that person ringing the bell now? You know, and all sorts of aversion can go at the poor person who's near the bell. Because they are the source of your suffering. And obviously, they're letting this meditation go on way too long. Yeah. So, grasping and aversion. So, luckily, the Buddha goes on to the third noble truth. And he said, even here, in this realm of all this impermanence change, all this place where there's so much loss and disappointment, if this tight fist of grasping is the cause of our suffering or fighting with life, then it's this opening, letting go, that brings peace, this accepting. And it's really an opening of the body, of the heart, of the mind, learning to open rather than close to life as it is. And you noticed, I'm sure you've noticed, that's easier said than done. But I imagine um, 
many of you have had, I would go so far as to say everyone has had moments at this retreat, whether or not you know it, where you're not entangled in a struggle. You're not grasping, you're not pushing something away. And when we're not in that activity, it's that whole fighting with, against how it is in this moment, the whole little cage of the, what we call the small or the separate suffering self opens for a moment or a minute or an hour. A lot of times people will feel it at, uh, during metta. And suddenly there's just a, a whole different point of view. There's, there's our true nature. There is the love. There's the wisdom. There's clarity. There's ease. There's compassion. You know, or we see the flower or the deer or whatever, and suddenly it's a whole different way of seeing. And as we continue practicing and having these moments, we start to actually recognize that it's that inner true nature that is the only source of lasting happiness and peace. It's right inside every single one of us. So um, when the Buddha talks about this third noble truth, the opening to life, a lot of people, including me, at a certain point in my life, will say, is the Buddha asking me to become apathetic? Just, okay, I open to it. Nuclear waste. I accept it as it is. No, I don't. No, I don't. Um, So, uh, no. No, the Buddha is definitely not asking us to be passive, not asking us to be apathetic, not, definitely not suggesting that we kind of do this half-dead resignation thing and call it acceptance. Kind of like, all right, okay, that's how it is. The Buddha actually um, lived in his life and modeled and taught that if there was a time, a situation where he could, or any of us could take action and alleviate suffering, do it. Alleviate suffering where we can do it. And he did many, many different ways. So, um, so many examples of great spiritual beings who are not... uh, not apathetic, I'll tell you a story of one you may or may not have heard of a great being called Maha Gosananda. And he was known as the Gandhi of Cambodia. He was one of the very few monks that survived the genocide that happened there between 1970, middle 70s to middle 80s. Horrendous uh, thing. The refugees that survived had had their villages burned, their temples, which were extremely precious to them, were burned. Almost everybody lost family members. Mahagosananda lost more than 30 family members. It was really bad. And in the face of all this, Mahagosananda um, really was determined not to live in bitterness. He knew that if we contract, if we harden the heart, if we get identified with the hate, we'll feel more separate. And when we feel more separate, whether than from the earth, from each other, from the other, whoever is the other, the more separate we feel, the more suffering 
The more we feel in connection, the less suffering. That's just a, one of the laws of how it is. So he, um, he deepened his practice and he made the choice to open rather than close to what was happening to his country, his people, his family. And he walked, it was a choice of his, to walk, not ride in buses, across Cambodia, village to village, a refugee camp to camp. And the people, this is a devout Buddhist country. These are villagers. So when they saw a monk coming in the orange robes, for them, that was like, wow, somebody lived, the Dharma is live, you know. He's coming to visit us. It was a big deal. And huge groups and crowds would gather when they heard Mahagosananda is coming. And he would come into these refugee camps and he would be with them and they'd hit the gong, they'd they'd get to hear this gong again that they had heard. And he'd start chanting these Buddhist teachings that they had been raised with as children in their villages. And he would often chant over and over with hundreds or even thousands of people um, this profound Buddhist teaching, which is hatred will never cease through hatred, but by love alone will it end. Hatred will never end through hatred, but by love alone will it end. And Jack Kornfield, our good friend, who's the founder of Spirit Rock, was actually, excuse me, <clears throat> he was there with Gosananda um, helping Maha Gosananda in the refugee camps. And he tells stories about seeing these refugees with tears streaming down their face when they heard the Dharma because they were reconnecting with this something that had been so precious to them in their life and it appeared to have been destroyed. But it turns out it couldn't be destroyed by the Khmer Rouge who killed the two million people, Um, they were reconnecting with the Dharma that was big enough and deep enough and wise enough to hold them and guide them through this tragedy. So super um, powerful. So one of the things that Maha Gosananda said was um, you've lost so much. Now you know how precious everything is. And now it's time to love again and to let things grow. So he inspired them to rebuild their homes, to rebuild their temples, and to, you know, to heal their lives. And um, one of the things that Maha Gosananda said sort of a challenge to all of us is if we can't be happy in spite of our difficulties what good is spiritual practice so that's kind of a steep uh, challenge isn't it I mean that is extremely advanced spiritual practice what those people were dealing with what he was dealing with and I hope that nobody in this room nobody that we know we hope will ever have to practice and apply our practice in 
such extreme conditions. We really hope that. But we also know that the first noble truth is true. Little 18-year-old Debbie was wrong. The Buddha was right. Uh, Every one of us are going to have to deal with our share of the inevitable stuff of life. That's just the deal here. So we practice now. We practice now because who knows? So one of my really beloved teachers, Stephen Levine, used to say, he said, practice is a little like going to a gym. You start with a three-pound weight and you get a little stronger and then a little later you maybe pick up a five or seven, maybe eventually you get to a ten-pound weight. He said, practice now while you've got these conditions because eventually everybody's going to have a 200-pound weight. It was a death and dying retreat. But he was saying, this is the time. If you have a cold, practice with your cold. So we practice in order to develop this opening rather than closing. We practice mindfulness, this thing that we, we say again and again, over and over, we say we become present. We see clearly just what's so Just right now, just this moment. Oh, restless. And then it's it's not like, oh, restless, that's bad. It's like, oh, restless. It's that moment of seeing and simultaneously opening. To this a second, restless. Or, oh, this is aversion. I hate this. Ah, aversion. (laughs) Opening to aversion. That's That's a good one. So... I'll tell you a story about a a young adult who opened to aversion. This is not at this retreat, but it was a recent retreat that I taught. And he came in and said, he was really frustrated and irritated. He said, I have this weird headache. He said, I'm not a headache person. I don't get headaches. But this headache, I'm fine. When I'm walking, I'm eating, there's no problem. I sit down. As soon as I start getting concentrated, I have this headache. As soon as the bell rings, the headache goes away. <laughs> you're saying that, you're laughing because you've, you had that, right? Yeah, isn't it magic? The bell rings. Where did that go? Oh, okay, well, so he's saying there's this, this headache, and he's really frustrated. I can't really practice, and et cetera. So he said, well, are you open to being... We'll just do a little exploration. And in, our, in my groups, we were doing these sort of guided exploration, meditative inquiries. I assume that was happening in some of your other groups. So I said, how about if you close your eyes and we just explore a little with what's here right now? Okay, you know, he was in that, yeah. So present, describing this sense of pressure in his head, this heat, this irritation... It's being present. Can you be present for just one moment? And so several moments of being present with this headache and something interesting happened. It was really interesting to him and to me and to the whole group. And he said, uh, I just got really tight in my stomach. I said, well, that's interesting. Let's be present with tight stomach. What happens? What does it feel like? Where is it? You know, so we're being, he's being practicing being present with this tightness in his stomach, this fist. And there's a certain sort of feeling that you can all kind of relate to it in the group. A person's kind of meditative. They're kind of getting present. And suddenly, 
his eyes pop open, and he, he sort of blurts out, I did something really stupid when I was 16. And I said, okay. And then he goes on, and it was definitely like intense. He said, and I don't want to talk about it. And I have been trying not to think about it for 10 years. And the reason I don't want to talk about it is the damage is done, and there's nothing, there, there's nothing I can do to fix it, so it's better to not think about it, not to deal with it. So I said, okay, remember in this practice we're doing, there's, there's no expectation that you're supposed to deal with something. There's, there's not a should. There's just being with right now. So what if you just sense your body and feel what the I don't want to, the resistance feels like? Are you, are you open to that? And he says, um, yeah, resistance. And he goes and he says, it feels like a fist in my stomach. You know, and he was able to sit there with this fist in his stomach for um, several moments. And then again, this one, he didn't pop his eyes open, but he kind of, he kept blurting out these pieces of content which weren't being asked for, but that was what was coming. So he was being with this tight thing, and he blurts out, I'm really afraid of, of facing how ashamed I am. And I said, well, that's, you don't actually have to face how ashamed you are. How about if you just experience the fear that you're having in this moment. Are, are you okay with that? So he said, okay. So he sat there and he described this shaky feeling in his stomach. And um, it was powerful. And for any of you that even spent a few moments sitting, being present with fear, it's powerful. And he did it. I reminded him, as I reminded you the other day, when we're sitting with real fear, we always bring that quality of kindness to join the awareness because fear is scary. So, um, you can guess what's about to happen. Um, He blurted out the next thing (laughs) that he wasn't wanting to talk about. He's just sitting with the fear in his stomach and he goes, I was drunk. (laughs) And I wanted to impress my friends. And and um, he said, the other person forgave me years ago, but I can't forgive myself. And then he was quiet, and then he just started to sob. And for like less than a minute, but that a minute of complete racking sobbing is a lot. And he's a large guy, so it's like his chair was almost shaking. He just sobbed for about a minute. And the whole group was sort of like, whoa, you know, this guy is, is just letting all this stuff come out. So he sobbed, and then he just got completely quiet. And you could just see him. He just relaxed. And he, the whole room actually got very, very quiet. And we were all just sitting with him in this quiet space. And so I said, well, can you describe what's happening now? He said, I feel this deep, quiet, peaceful feeling my whole body, and my mind. And he said, it's like open space and totally peaceful. And he was just sitting in the whole room. You could actually feel this peaceful openness. 
And then a few, several moments after he just sort of soaked in that, he said something like, um, everything's going to be okay. It feels like everything is okay. It's like from that point of view, he could feel everything was okay. He touched peace. So when he was finally able to meet resistance, all the stuff he met with awareness and kindness, this ball of energy, this thing he'd been avoiding, denying, was able to unwind. And he touched this this natural state we call it, this inner peace. So when I tell this story... I don't tell this so that you will think you're supposed to have an experience like that, where you have a psycho-emotional energy unwind. (laughs) That's not the point of the story, but it makes for a good drama. Uh, But um, as I keep saying, there's no supposed to, but I'm sharing it because um, it really shows how mindfulness is just opening to this moment, the what's actually happening right here, right now, not into what it should be or what it could be or how it was. It's just this. And um, that includes opening to being closed. That's when he sat with the resistance. So opening to aversion. So in the frame-up of the, those noble truths, first noble truth, he was definitely suffering when he came in. The second noble truth... The cause of that suffering was that fighting this, fighting with life. I don't want to see this, feel this, know this. So he'd been suffering a decade about it. The third noble truth, when he finally was able to open to his resistance, to his fear, just to what was happening, he got to taste this larger possibility that's inside of all of us, what we'll call a sense of peace. So it's kind of like a, a weird joke. You know, why didn't somebody in first grade tell us the formula? If we resist it, it persists. If we open to it, we feel relief. I mean, but we're just totally conditioned on the opposite. You know what I mean? We're conditioned to avoid pain. And this, this amazing dharma shows us the opposite. So here's a poem by... Jennifer Wellwood, she says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Opening to my loss, I embrace the universe. I'm sorry. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. So in this training, where we train to open rather than close to life, which is the opposite of our organism's conditioning. So it's a training. Um, We develop 
mindfulness, we develop metta, and we also really learn to use wise intention. So I'm going to tell you about an intention that has been profoundly influential in my journey. Um, When I was a young adult, long ago, uh, I was desperately seeking my beloved, you know, who who would be my life partner. And I had the list, you know, he has to definitely be into Dharma and he has to definitely like wilderness, you know. He definitely has to like Bob Marley, as (laughs) Oren said. And he has to like to dance and he has to be really fun. And, you know, there was quite a list. It it (laughs) didn't even dawn on me in the humble days in the 70s to even consider on the list that he would have a job. (laughs) And so... That had to be dealt with later, you know, and, and, we, and it was eventually. That was its own little journey. <laughs> so anyway, I did find this person, and, and we had this very humble wedding. And the day after the very, very humble wedding, um, that's a whole story, um, my brother, my beloved brother, was there, the lawyer. I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, oh, I wish I had the Birkenstock franchise for this community because <laughs> you know, he'd never been to a wedding with so many people wearing Birkenstock. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, at that, at that very humble wedding, we took these amazing vows, uh, uh, adaptation of the Bodhisattva vow, which my teacher Stephen Levine had shared with us because he was working with that vow in his marriage. And... Um, so the, bodhi, the essence of the bodhisattva vow, which is a profound Buddhist, it's called inspired aspiration. Um, the essence of it is that the bodhisattva says, I vow to use whatever may arise, even if the sun should rise in the west, I will use that for my own awakening and in order to benefit all beings. So it's a lofty vow. So Stephen uh, had applied it to relationship. And so in our wedding, very sincerely, we really meant it. I vow to use whatever may arise in our journey together, our marriage, for our awakening and to benefit all beings. So very sincere and so deeply clueless, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I mean... How could you begin to imagine? There's no way to know what, what's the whatever. It's everything, you know. I'm going to open to that and awaken and serve all my God. So luckily now I can love that, that Deborah and Gio from back then because we realize that the Bodhisattva vow isn't even intended to be something that is achieved. It's an, it's an aspiration for the heart. So anyway, we took the vow and little did he know that that I would end up getting a chronic illness, which would have this huge impact on our life for decades. Um, little did I know that his family history of addiction, drug addiction, would come and visit our house for several years. Didn't plan for that when we made that vow. So we would sometimes sometimes laugh, other times not so funny, but um, we might laugh and say, remember when we said the whatever arises, I didn't mean this. You know? I meant whatever arises except this. Right. Sure. That just wasn't, that clause wasn't in there. And yeah, 
And honestly, truly, if it hadn't been for that vow and how inspired I was by it, I would have been so far out of there, so many times gone. Adios, just like all the other relationships that I had left when they got hard. But this one I had, you know, in that huge, big, humble wedding <laughs> with all those Birkenstocks, <clears throat> I had really signed up for the, for the big, full deal. <clears throat> so... Off we went. So over and over, because of the commitment, because of the vow, we kept somehow with various amounts of courage and truth and suffering, etc., we kept finding our way to somehow open to all this stuff that we hadn't planned on. And the stuff I mentioned was just a little bit of this stuff. You can imagine, 34 years, there's a lot of, lot of whatever that arises. So um, over and over, we found our way to the love that's larger than the pain or loss that we were going through. And also... We didn't just open to the difficulty. Sometimes just as challenging is that we've had to open to beautiful, ecstatic, amazing joys that neither one of us dreamed would ever be our own experience. And that's its own opening, because the ego identity doesn't... Wow, that can happen to us or to me. So the whole journey has been about opening. And we both now, you know, like I say, 33, 34 years into this journey, um, we both see in each other and ourselves that some of the most important growth and even true awakenings that we've had came through the pressure of opening to the difficulties. Raise your hand if you or anybody you know has grown in the face of difficulty. Yeah, it's there we are. And, and this is what you might call a growth-oriented group, Red Spirit Rock. It's actually not everybody grows, not everybody chooses to open rather than close, but this is the kind of group that has a lot of that, and it's important to see. Um, so I sometimes wonder if we individuals, certainly this kind of community, if we experience fairly reliably having a lot of our most best growth come from individual personal difficulty, what might happen as humanity faces the environmental crisis. What might happen? What if that was also going to be a place where we'd grow to things we didn't even know we could do? God, I hope so. So, um, you know, how can we apply uh, the Dharma teachings to the fact that we're living on a beloved planet that is heating up? And we all know all the, you know, fill in the blanks what that means. So we don't just 
need the earth because of every meal we'll ever eat and every breath we'll ever take. We love the earth. You probably, I mean, I'm speaking for I think most of us in this group, love the earth. And we walk around on retreat and when we're meditating and suddenly it's like, oh my God, that lizard, I love that lizard. <laughs> yeah, really, like, oh my God, I had no idea I could love a lizard like that. You know, or, I mean, how many people have ever fallen in love with a turkey? Right, at Spirit Rock. It happens. We hear about it all the time. Oh, my God, that turkey changed my life. The gobble. The gobble happened at the very moment, you know. So we love the earth. So I'll share a, what would a Dharma talk, especially one relating to the earth, be without a Mary Oliver poem? So I'll share This morning, the green fists of the peonies are getting ready to break my heart as the sun rises, and they open pools of lace, white and pink, and all day the black ants climb over them, boring their deep and mysterious holes into the curls, craving the sweet sap, taking it away to their dark underground cities, and all day... Under the shifty wind, as in a dance to the great wedding, the flowers bend their bright bodies and tip their fragrance to the air and rise their red stems, holding all that dampness and recklessness gladly and lightly. And there it is again, beauty, the brave, the exemplary, blazing open. Do you love this world? Do you cherish your humble and silky life? Do you adore the green grass? So, in a group like this, I assume most of you do love this world. I do, big time. And... um, I care deeply. I think a lot of you care very deeply. I know a lot of you are involved in action for the earth. But I want to share with you a little bit about my own personal journey with this because I'm someone I passionately love the earth. And my capacity to open rather than close to this, the environmental crisis, um, has been all over the place. So, uh, it goes in cycles, so maybe there'll be some horrible piece of information. I just feel overwhelmed. I shut it out. But then I get together and do some action. And then I feel grief. And then I buy a Prius. And then, I, and then I'm righteous to my friends that they didn't get a, a, the right car. And, and then I feel guilty. And then I donate some money. And then I feel overwhelmed and paralyzed. And then I go back to action. You know, so does anybody relate to this sort of all over the place thing? Yeah, some of you. I guess everybody else is, is totally together about this issue. <laughs> it's not really a big challenge, right? Yeah, God, it's so big. It's so big. It's immense. It's, it's beyond complex. So it's really hard for me, personally, to really stay open to it. And yet it matters to me, so I um, worked on that. I um, saw how really helpful applying 
the Bodhisattva vow specifically to our marriage was, has been so specifically helpful and powerful. So I decided I needed an extra little oomph of support on this one. So I decided to apply the Bodhisattva vow specifically to this situation about the earth. And also was definitely motivated by the beloved teacher, Joanna Macy. If you haven't yet experienced her, please run, don't walk. She's still alive at 84 and blazing as a bodhisattva. And she's an incredible Buddhist scholar, Buddhist teacher, and a, a deep ecologist and activist and really amazing. So Joanna has a set of vows that we work with in her groups. But, um, so this vow is a, is a combination of one of her vows with the bodhisattva twist. So it says, I commit myself daily to the healing of the world and the welfare of all beings. And I vow to use whatever happens environmentally to awaken. And I, and the group I do this with, we know what that little phrase means, whatever happens environmentally. It's a little phrase for a big topic. But we know what it means and have found that um, saying this out loud regularly with a group of people has actually really supported me in my capacity to show up more consistently and turn toward the challenge. And there are two very simple truths that I found. I now work with lots and lots of people in this topic um, and lead retreats on it and stuff. And so the two simple, simple things I will pass on that seem to really help people in opening and engaging, not shutting down. One is don't try to do it alone. Um, You know, like donating the money to the big group and all that. That's all good. We need to keep donating. Even online communities, all good. But if you can get in a room or or outside with a group of humans actually physically present, you'll be amazed what can happen when you take on this topic, when you're with a group of people. The other one is don't be overwhelmed by the vastness and the complexity. Just pick the littlest one little piece in your your group that you have, which I wish for all of you to have, works on one little thing, you know, one little fundraiser for trees, you know, and then you have one victory. Yeah, we planted 10,000 trees. That feels good. Okay, what are we going to do next? So much more able to do something if we do something doable. So I'm going to... Um, oh, yeah. Um, so in this... I'm in two different practice. We call them practice action groups. Joanna calls them study action groups, and then we, the Dharma ones, are practice act, action groups. And we first we sit together, meditate, and then our Dharma talk is that we work on our project together. And there's all kinds of resource sharing and education, and sometimes we need to hold a space while somebody deals with a feeling because we know that if we avoid these particular set of feelings about what's happening to the earth, it jams up our capacity to respond. It jams up energy. So we hold space for that sometimes. And 
we have found at these groups, and lots of other people, because I'm in a network of many of these groups, have found this interesting thing, which is that being together with a group of humans physically present, dealing directly with an issue, sets loose a tremendous energy. And sometimes you could even call that energy joy. And it's a very weird word to use, in relation to one of the very worst things that's ever happened and will certainly be the biggest challenge in your lifetimes. You know, I mean, it's, there's no kidding about that. Um, so how could there be joy? Um, it's not the joy that our little fundraiser is going to save the world. There's something about shifting into collective action that, uh, on behalf of life, that taps us into a much greater energy, a greater force and, um, than, we, than our concept would have imagined. So um, it's like there's this huge reservoir of uh, creativity and love that's been dammed up behind the overwhelm and the paralysis. So when you finally make a little move, whoosh, there's this energy that, that often flows and floods. So last March, um, a few months ago, there was a meeting of Dharma teachers that had already been set on the calendar for a year. I was going to this meeting. It just so happened that that meeting fell on one week after the NASA study um, on climate change came out. You may have seen that not-so-exciting news. Um, and it was one day after the huge UN, United Nations report was released forecasting all the very not-so-pretty things that could happen in the next 30, 50, 100 years if we don't make significant changes. So um, that was a, a powerful week. It actually made, finally, the front page of the New York Times. It was such big news. You probably all know about what I'm talking about. So the Dharma teachers, we did our meditation stuff. Then we broke into small groups that day. And our small group, you know, people were sort of reeling from the intensity of this information and the volume of it. And um, the very in the group, we were dealing with how do we as Dharma teachers be with this? How do we help our students with it? What do we do about this? How do we be with this? So the very first person that shared... It was kind of like this person had a sort of heavy shroud on, and, and this person said, um, it's hopeless. The, the experiment failed. There's nothing we can do. And, 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 and so we, all, we heard that, you know, understandable. We've all felt it at times. Then we went on. Each one, there's like 10 or 12 people in the group. And, and people, some people shared intense feelings, emotions that they were having. And, that, and that's its own power if you're in a group where that happens. Some people shared about really extraordinary projects they're involved in, really inspiring projects. Um, one person said something like, well, if this is all going to come down, like what the report said could happen if we don't change, then I really feel motivated to support my sangha to be able to meet it with as much compassion and equanimity as possible. Another person said, um, 
reminded us of the Paul Hawken study. I don't know. Did you hear? Have you raise your hand if you know about the Paul Hawken? Not there. Oh, darn! I should have looked it up and got the numbers, but maybe you know the numbers. Um, okay, Paul Hawken. This was several, maybe five, seven years ago. Did this big international, worldwide study, trying to count the number of social action and environmental groups on the whole planet. He, think, he thought he would find a few hundred thousand groups. And when he got somewhere over a million, he said, whoa, you know, this is so much more than I expected. And that was years ago. And there's way more now. So uh, that didn't make the front page of the New York Times. But that kind of thing will eventually. Another person shared some really exciting um, scientific information that none of us knew, that also didn't make the news. So um, the next go-round in the group of Dharma teachers was what, we might, what action we might like to take. And that was quite powerful to feel the impact that we could have working together as a committee, as a practice action group, what kind of impact we could have. So by the very end of the group, the person who started feeling the shroud, the hopeless feeling. He was beaming. He was all lit up. And we're looking at him. He said, I get it. I'm in. Let's do whatever we can do. And we're all just cracking up. We're laughing. And here was this, this energy again that has I've come to see. This happens. And we were laughing. And here we were dealing with the heaviest news. And there was all this lightness. And... Um, we, um, besides the, 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 the humor over the person's, you know, sort of shifting from hopeless to let's go, um, there was a kind of surprise in the group that by the simple act of being together, turning toward this problem, not being too busy or not talking about all the stuff we talk about at these meetings, but just turning toward it, how surprised we were that it was so enlivening, so energizing, so dynamic. And it was ta- it, we, people were saying, wow, I didn't think this would be like this. So um, this, this is something we're definitely noticing. In the, this practice action group seemed to unleash creative energy. And um, it's almost as though... Nobody says these words, but you're there, and I know that many of you have had these experiences that we realize we couldn't even begin to, to face off Goliath unless we do this together. So there's an, an energizing, a sense of empowerment. Well, we are going to do our best to do this together. And then there's an empowerment that happens. But it's even more than that. And I'll, again, I'll read something from Joanna Macy. So Joanna, one of her books is called World as Lover, World as Self, and she's really encouraging us through Buddhist practice, through life practice, through loving the earth practice, to expand beyond this little me identity self and to really begin to recognize our self as the planet, our self as interconnected. So she says... um, With this extension, this greening of the self, we can find a sense of buoyancy and resilience that comes from letting flow through us strengths and resources 
that come to us with continuous surprise and a sense of blessing. There is a deep, deep kinship in us beneath the outer layer of our neocortex or what we learned in school. There's a deep wisdom, a bondedness with our creation and an ingenuity far beyond what we think we have. When we expand our notions of what we are, we will have a wonderful time and we will survive. So I think everybody here knows what it's like to feel shut down to this topic, I'm assuming. And we have a feeling for how bad things could get if we all collectively turn away in denial. The first noble truth saying, don't be in denial. If we just all look away, not really happening, that could, that could go that could go kind of dark. But what we don't yet know is what is possible when millions of people turn toward this and choose to open to how we love this world. We don't know what's possible. What if millions and millions of people decided to commit to the intention to serve and awaken no matter what. Not based on knowing what the outcome will be. Based on the intention to serve and awaken. And what if you, and I mean every one of you, any one of you, what if you had the opportunity sometime in the future, like Gosananda, to be there for groups of people who had been in their darkest hour? What if you are someone who's going to help them reconnect to the greater truth and to their heart and to love? Why not you? When Gosananda was your age, I don't know for sure, but I would bet money that he didn't have a clue he was going to be the Gandhi of Cambodia. He was a Buddhist monk. He was practicing the exact same practices you're practicing. He was sitting and walking and practicing, practicing, training, training. So we, um, we practice now in this, as we said, in the Bodhisattva gym, we lift up these 5 and 10 and 15 pound weights. So if we're sitting and we have a moment of being able to open to a loneliness or a knee pain, we are, that is that moment we are training. And every moment that we meet ourselves or some, someone else with kindness, with compassion, with forgiveness, we are training. And we are training our body, our heart, our mind to open rather than close no matter what. That's the training. And the truth is, we don't know how this is going to play out. We don't. But we get to choose, we get to make inspired aspiration. We can have intention about how we will be with it. So I'm going to finish tonight with a 
very beautiful um, aspiration prayer that our beautiful living Bodhisattva, the Dalai Lama, says every day. And you might imagine what would happen if you said or chanted this or something like this every day, if it was running through your stream of consciousness. And I think, I hope, I trust you all have a sense that the Dalai Lama is not just a figurehead. He is so the real deal. He has remained loving and nonviolent and wise and joyous in the face of the worst planet Earth can shove at somebody or a country. And, And he's done that not just for Tibet, but he is now, he belongs to the world. He shows up all over helping everybody. I've been with him when he's working with gang youth. I mean, he's just a boat. He's known as the Bodhisattva of compassion. So this is what he says every day. May I be a guard for those who need protection. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a healing medicine for all who are sick. May I be a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitudes of living beings. May I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and the sky, and tell all beings are free from sorrow, and all are awakened. So let's just take a moment, close our eyes, don't have to change your position, just let that sink in for a moment. So you have this half hour to walk in and really enjoy the beautiful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.